From New York, this is Democracy Now! Ukraine is now closer to NATO than ever before. Allies reaffirmed that Ukraine will become a member of the alliance and agreed to remove the requirement for a membership action plan. NATO says Ukraine will someday be invited to the military alliance, but the U.S. and its European allies are just not saying when. We'll get the latest on the major NATO summit in Lithuania, then to the devastating war in Sudan. The humanitarian crisis has intensified with over half a million people displaced, um, hundreds of thousands uh, fleeing their homes. Uh, The capital city of Khartoum has been uh, decimated, the infrastructure destroyed by the militia forces known, known as the Rapid Support Forces. And we'll go to Vermont, where catastrophic flooding submerged the state's capital, Montpelier, and many towns. Vermont's 13 swift water rescue teams have now performed more than 100 rescues throughout the state, and they remain extremely busy. Additionally, five teams from Connecticut, Massachusetts, and North Carolina are in-state and assisting. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is attending his first NATO-Ukraine Council meeting today at the NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania. On Tuesday, NATO said it planned to grant Ukraine membership in the future, but did not offer a timetable. Zelensky blasted the lack of clear timeline as absurd, as he has been intensely lobbying for expedited accession to the military alliance. NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg said today the most urgent task is to supply Ukraine with enough weapons to fight against the Russian invasion. Zelensky is also meeting with President Biden today, who opposed immediate membership for Ukraine. Biden's also delivering remarks today on U.S. and NATO support for Ukraine. Meanwhile, top Russian official Dmitry Medvedev warned Tuesday, the World War III is getting closer. The U.S. has slammed Russia's inhumane veto to extend a key aid delivery route from Turkey into Syria. The U.N. Security Council failed to pass an extension after Russia's proposal to approve a six-month extension rather than nine- or 12-month one failed to gain support. The Syrian government backed Russia's decision, accusing Western powers at the Security Council of, quote, violating Syria's sovereignty under the pretext of delivering cross-border aid. The U.N responded to the news Tuesday. U.N. cross-border assistance remains a veritable lifeline for millions of people in the northwest of Syria, as humanitarian needs have reached an all-time high since the start of the conflict. While the impact of the devastating February earthquake is still uh, acutely felt. In more news about Syria, the Committee to Protect Journalists is demanding the government reverse its decision to revoke the accreditation of two local BBC journalists after accusing them of false and politicized reporting. In Afghanistan, two children aged 4 and 15 died after Taliban authorities forcibly evicted nearly 300 internally displaced families from a makeshift camp in Kabul. The Norwegian Refugee Council documented the settlement's demolition, saying some 1,700 people were forced into the streets, while authorities blocked humanitarian aid groups from the site. Millions of Afghans have been internally displaced following 20 years of U.S. occupation and violence followed by the Taliban takeover in 2021. In Iowa, 
Republican lawmakers passed a six-week abortion ban last night following a marathon one-day special legislative session. Republican Governor Kim Reynolds said she would sign the bill into law Friday. It'll go into effect immediately unless halted by a court. Abortion is currently legal in Iowa up to 20 weeks of pregnancy. The new ban would only provide exceptions for miscarriages when the life of the patient or the fetus is at risk, and for rape and incest if the rape is reported to an official. In Vermont, waters are starting to recede after historic flooding inundated roads, homes and businesses. An emergency health order closed downtown Montpelier for a day as it was submerged in water. Over 100 people have been rescued. Officials fear more rains forecast for Thursday could create even more havoc. Vermont Governor Phil Scott said Tuesday the flooding and rains were greater than 2011's Hurricane Irene. People will think this is over, but it's not over because the rivers could still rise. The water has to go someplace. The reservoirs are filling up. Later in the broadcast, we'll go to Waterbury, Vermont, for the latest. A federal appeals court has ordered a halt to construction of a section of the Mountain Valley Pipeline that runs through the Jefferson National Forest as it reviews a challenge by environmental groups. Last month's debt ceiling legislation fast-tracked approval and construction of the 300-mile pipeline in West Virginia and Virginia, despite opposition from environmental experts, affected communities and many Democrats. Joe Manchin, the Senate's biggest recipient of oil industry funding, who pushed for expediting the pipeline, blasted the court's stay as unlawful. The European Parliament has narrowly approved the flagship nature restoration law. Environmentalists heralded today's vote, which right-wing lawmakers and industrial farming lobbies had been pushing against. The legislation, which lawmakers must now debate, will work to restore biodiversity in Europe. In 2021, the European Environment Agency found that over 80 percent of the EU's ecosystems are in poor or bad condition. Climate activists have been organizing around the law. On Tuesday, Greta Thunberg joined others in front of the EU Parliament in Strasbourg, France. We demand that the MEPs do not reject this law and vote for the strongest law possible. Anything else will be seen for exactly what it is, a betrayal both to those suffering the most from these crises, to future generations, but also to humanity as a whole. A shipwreck off the coast of Greece that killed at least 81 migrants last month may have been caused by the Greek Coast Guard, which later tried to cover up its responsibility. That's according to a joint probe by several news outlets, including The Guardian, which suggests the Greek Coast Guard's efforts to tow the vessel actually destabilized it and ultimately caused it to capsize. Over 500 migrants are still missing and fear dead. In Haiti, thousands of protesters have taken to the streets, demanding an end to gang violence and political instability that's nearly paralyzed the island nation. Heavily armed criminal groups have expanded their control, taking over local communities by force. There's been reports of extrajudicial killings and sexual violence happening on a daily basis with women and children most at risk. This is one of the protesters. We must all be one because we all suffer from the high cost of living. Today we are in the streets asking if Haiti can be free with this government. Can Haiti be free with the current education system? Last year they increased school fees. This year we are asking for liberation for Haiti.
In San Francisco, a class-action lawsuit accuses Google of violating the privacy and property rights of millions of users by scraping their personal data and copyrighted material from websites without permission. The information was then used to train Google's artificial intelligence systems, including the chatbot Bard. Plaintiffs say Google, quote, has been secretly stealing everything ever created and shared on the Internet by hundreds of millions of Americans, unquote, to develop its AI products. A grand jury has been impaneled in Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis's case investigating whether Donald Trump and others should face criminal charges for their efforts to overturn his 2020 election defeat in Georgia. In January 2021, Trump asked Georgia's secretary of state to find enough votes to overturn Biden's victory. Willis has said indictments could come in August. This comes as Trump's team has asked to postpone the federal criminal trial related to his handling of classified documents until after the 2024 election. In more legal woes for the former president, Trump has lost presidential immunity from writer E. Jean Carroll's defamation lawsuit against him. On Tuesday, the Justice Department said it would no longer hold the position that Trump's denial of raping Carroll and derogatory comments made in 2019 were related to his duties as president. In Britain, some 900 Amazon warehouse workers in the city of Coventry are on a three-day strike, coinciding with Amazon Prime Day, which runs Tuesday and Wednesday this week. The workers are fighting for fair wages, humane working conditions, and recognition of their union. Amazon workers in Germany are also striking this week. We are in solidarity with the Writers Guild from Amazon in the United States with your fight. Your fight is our fight. We are in solidarity with the Amazon workers in Coventry who are in strike these days. We are a worldwide movement. We are fighting for better conditions, for more money on Amazon worldwide. Here in the United States, dozens of delivery drivers contracted by Amazon in Southern California have been on strike since late June to protest unsafe working conditions amid extreme heat. And federal mediators have been brought in as talks between Hollywood Studios and SAG-AFTRA are in their 11th hour. Actors are seeking better residual payments from streaming platforms and protections against the potential impact of AI on the entertainment industry. The extended contract of unionized actors expires midnight tonight. The Writers Guild remains on strike. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York with Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, NATO is saying Ukraine is, quote, closer than ever to joining the military alliance. But NATO nations are resisting calls to give Kyiv a timeline for membership. NATO leaders are meeting in Vilnius, Lithuania today for the second day of talks. In a communique issued Tuesday, the 31 nations and NATO said, quote, we will be in a position to extend an invitation to Ukraine to join the alliance when allies agree and conditions are met. This is NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. We reaffirmed that Ukraine will become a member of NATO and agreed to remove the requirement for a membership action plan. This would change Ukraine's membership path from a two-step process to a one-step process.
We also made clear that we will issue an invitation for Ukraine to join NATO when allies agree and conditions are met. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is attending the NATO summit and is meeting today with President Biden and other world leaders. Zelensky has criticized NATO for failing to give Ukraine a timeline to join the military alliance. On our agenda, we have, I think for today, three priority questions. The first one is uh, weapon packages, new weapon packages for supporting our army on the battlefield. And that is one. The second, I think, the invitation to NATO. And uh, um, we want to be on the same page with everybody, with all, all the understanding. And for today, what we, what, we, what we hear and understand that we'll have this invitation when security measures will allow. Yes, so I, I want to discuss with our partners all these things. And the sword will will speak today and fight for this. It's security guarantees for Ukraine on the way to NATO. Over the past 48 hours, a number of nations have announced new military assistance for Ukraine. France has agreed to send Ukraine long-range cruise missiles. A group of 11 NATO nations have pledged to begin training Ukrainian pilots to fly U.S.-made F-16 warplanes. Germany's finalized a new $770 million military package that includes more tanks and Patriot missiles. G7 leaders are also expected to announce today a new wide-ranging security pact with Ukraine. We're joined now by two guests. In Washington, Medea Benjamin joins us, co-founder of Code Pink, co-author of the new book, War in Ukraine, Making Sense of a Senseless Conflict. She's just back from visiting Western Ukraine. And in Berlin, we're joined by Andreas Sumach. He's a defense correspondent for the left-wing German daily, Die Tageszeitung. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Andreas, let's begin with you. Can you respond to what's happened um, at the NATO summit in Vilnius so far, and particularly also talk about Germany's position vis-à-vis Ukraine and the United States? Well, both Germany, but also the U.S., the Biden administration, were against making a clear-cut commitment to Ukraine's membership at this point of time. The main reason is the calculation in Washington that by fall this year, the so-called spring offensive of the Ukrainian forces might have made some uh, gains, and then it would be possible to call for negotiations. Whether this calculation will work or not, I'm very skeptical, but uh, the hope is in Washington that um, Putin will be prepared then to talk. But if now NATO would have taken, um, uh, given a clear signal for NATO membership of Ukraine, Putin would not have joined. This is a concern. And I think the dilemma is even bigger than it has been already before. Uh, this NATO summit. Um, The main condition for Ukraine membership is an end to this war. And I am convinced as long as the issue of Ukrainian NATO membership is on the table, this war will not end. And this dilemma has become even bigger after this NATO summit. And in so far, all the public statements we have heard um, are somewhat dishonest. And, Andrea, what is uh, your sense of the public sentiment in Germany as the war drags on? Obviously, the European Union is facing even more economic dislocation as a result. Uh, how, uh, uh, how is public sentiment in Germany de- evolving? 
The latest serious poll has been taken at the end of May by the public television network ARD. And according to this poll, only 43% support further weapons deliveries to Ukraine. This figure is way down from well above 75% uh, during earlier months of the war. And the other result is 55% think that the uh, diplomatic efforts to put an end to the war are not sufficient. This number has steadily climbed from literally zero at the beginning of the war, and I expect it will climb even further in the upcoming weeks and months. Now, there have been reports of uh, back-channel meetings between former U.S. national security officials and Russian officials uh, with the aim of laying a groundwork for negotiations. Uh, Could these uh, back-channel talks be a way of actually moving forward while claiming still uh, to uh, be providing all-out support to Ukraine militarily? Well, first, we have to remember all efforts to end wars since the end of the Second World War have begun with more or less secret back-channels efforts, uh, sometimes through uh, mediation of third parties. And let's hope that this will at some point be successful. But this is part of the dishonesty I have talked about. Secretary of State Blinken already 10 weeks ago has said publicly, quote, the Ukraine government of President Zelensky has to be prepared to make territorial concessions at the negotiation table, which means, for instance, to give up either the Crimean Peninsula or even parts of the eastern provinces, uh, the Donbass. On the other hand, the publicly declared goal of the Zelensky government is to reconquer all territories currently controlled or occupied by Russian forces, and which includes Crimea and the whole of the Donbass. This doesn't fit together. So it remains to be seen how the uh, Biden administration will be able to bring Zelensky to this point to accept whatever kind of territorial uh, concessions. I don't think principally that it is good if this war would result in territorial concessions. And I think it would be much better to have some kinds of referendums held both in the Crimean and in the Donbass, not referendums like back in 2014, not controlled and organized by Russia, but controlled and organized by the United Nations. And there should be a question on the uh, on the voting sheet, which was not on the sheet back in March 2014. And this would be the option of a far-reaching autonomy, both for the Crimean Peninsula and also for the disputed Donbass areas, which would mean where you have Russian majority population, Russia should be the language, but also the possibility to raise your own taxes, and which you don't have to give up to the central government in Kiev, and also decentralization, federalization of the Ukraine, which would not only be necessary for the Crimean and the Donbass, but for the whole um, uh, Ukraine. I think we had been at this point before at the Minsk agreements in February 2015, And I also want to remind our viewers and listeners that the Zelensky government in March last year, at the last official negotiation round between Russian and uh, Ukrainian government delegations in Istanbul, the official proposal of the Zelensky government was, number one, to give up 
the idea of NATO membership. Number two, neutrality for the Ukraine. Number three, no foreign military uh, bases, neither Russian nor NATO Western. Number four, a binding and reliable security guarantees by a number of countries. Number five, we would be prepared to freeze the issue of the Crimean Peninsula for another 15 years, have another 15 years of time to negotiate with Russia. And number six, a similar scenario for the Donbass. I think there is no way around. Somehow one has to get back to this uh, position. Andreas, um, I described your newspaper, Die Takasaitung, as left-wing. Um, would you describe it in that way? And if you could uh, say whether it would be accurate to say that the Green Party, the party of the country's current foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, are the most sympathetic to Ukraine and the least likely to favor territorial concessions, uh, and the majority of supporters of the far-right populist alternative for uh, Germany, AFD, believe Ukraine should relinquish territory. Well, the question, Amy, what is left and what is right, has been more and more distorted since the end of the Cold War 33 years ago. Uh, the Tageszeitung has always been very progressive on human rights issues, on uh, women's uh, and feminist issues, and mainly on environmental issues. Um, for the last 16 months, I would not describe the position the mainstream in the paper has taken on the Ukrainian war as a left position. Um, and therefore, um, I'm somewhat isolated, maybe, with the position I just spelled out. Uh, but the paper is pretty much supporting the official Western government policies, and the, as does the Green Party, totally, with very few exceptions of some people uh, who are now pushed to the fringes of uh, the party. And um, they use the rhetoric, for instance, Foreign Minister Alanina, Alanina Baerbock, describing their approach as feminist foreign policy. And now try to legitimize even uh, military support, even stronger military support, up to uh, nuclear deterrence for, for the Europeans as a part of feminist um, foreign policy. I have uh, many problems with this kind of arguments. Uh, I'd like to bring Medea Benjamin uh, into the conversation of, of Cold Pink. Uh, Medea, uh, you've recently uh, visited uh, Ukraine. Could you uh, talk about what you saw there? Uh, yes, I was in the western part of Ukraine and uh, talked to many people about their uh, visions for the future. And they are being fed a daily diet uh, of irrational expectations that Ukraine is winning this war, that Ukraine can win the war, that winning means taking back every inch of Donbass and the Crimea. And, of course, terrible hatred of Russia uh, that even translates into stores having signs on them. Uh, the language of the oppressor would not be allowed in here. Uh, people saying they uh, hate just hearing the sound of a Russian language. Um, I understand in the midst of a war where we saw 
uh, funerals taking place every day when we went to the uh, freshly minted graveyard and saw hundreds of, uh, of graves of young men uh, whose family members were there weeping, uh, how people feel. But this is not the reality on the ground. Uh, as we saw in the leaked Pentagon documents and as we see uh, in the daily attempts by Ukraine to win this counteroffensive, there is a stalemate on the ground. Ukraine is not going to win back every inch of uh, the country. And so uh, those who have more realistic uh, uh, views of this, I think, have prevailed at the NATO summit of saying that it is impossible to give a date for Ukraine to enter NATO because you can't enter NATO um, while there is a war going on. And while this issue of Ukraine being a member of NATO is on the table, the Russians will keep fighting. So the tragedy is that the poor Ukrainians are uh, in this catch-22, uh, and there must be uh, the uh, cooler heads prevailing to say uh, that the only way to solve this problem is to call for a ceasefire and negotiations. I wanted to ask you, Medea, you went to Lviv after your <clears throat> taking part in the Vienna International Summit for Peace in Ukraine. Can you describe what happened there, having venues cancel on you? Well, yes. First of all, the Vienna summit was a tremendous success, uh, but that was despite efforts by the Ukrainian community and particularly the Ukrainian ambassador to Austria to try to cancel our event. And in fact, they were successful in getting the trade union confederation two days before the event uh, to pull the plug and not let us use the venue, just as they managed to get the press club uh, to not let us have our, have our press conference there. Uh, the press in Ukraine was extremely hostile to us, uh, characterizing our speakers as Putin apologists, which is uh, absolutely ridiculous. Uh, so despite all of that, we did have this event, and it went off extremely well with representatives of 32 countries there, including uh, representatives from Ukraine and from Russia. But I must say that those from Ukraine and Russia were afterwards uh, attacked by their own people. And this shows the kind of uh, censorship and hostility that exists. I traveled throughout many countries in Eastern Europe and found that journalists who were calling for negotiations were losing their jobs. People were afraid to speak out. I also attended a, a gathering in Ireland uh, where there has been a pushback, just like in Austria, to stop those countries, the few left uh, that are still neutral. And uh, so there is a tremendous pall all over Europe in which it's very hard for people to speak out. And I must say that the same thing uh, is happening to some extent in the United States, where people like myself at a number of venues have been uh, attacked both by uh, protesters, uh, but in, in one case got violent. Uh, but on the other hand, I think there is more space being created for discussion here in the United States, thanks to the fact that there are a number of presidential candidates from Republicans like Trump and DeSantis to Democrats like Robert Kennedy uh, to uh, Cornell West, who wants to be the Green Party representative, that are opening up space for a different discussion. And the fact that, as in Germany, the public opinion show, polls are showing that uh, this is becoming a less and less popular position for the Biden administration, I think this opens up 
up space for those of us who want to push our government to take the position that we must move to the negotiating table. And Medea, I wondered if you could talk about the, uh, the, uh, the refugee situation. Since the start of the war, Poland has absorbed a staggering 5 million refugees from Ukraine without the establishment of any refugee camps. Uh, and uh, could you talk about that compared to other war zones uh, you visited? And interestingly, just for instance, right here in Chicago, in the last uh, six months, 29,000 uh, Ukrainian refugees have been resettled in Chicago. That's three times the number of uh, asylum seekers from the border who have come to Chicago, yet all the Ukrainians have been have been resettled without much fanfare and much and and much media attention while we still have these uh, refugee, these asylum seekers from the border uh, housed in police precincts. Uh, they can't get work permits. They have no prospects for uh, any kind of uh, uh, peaceful resettlement here uh, while their cases are being judged. Could you talk about Poland's amazing uh, re response to the refugee crisis? Well, people say that the Polish people should be given a Nobel Peace Prize for the way that they opened their homes and welcomed the refugees from Ukraine. Uh, the way the refugees from Ukraine have been treated around the world is an example of how refugees should be treated from anywhere. But this is absolutely not the case, because the vast majority of the Ukrainians are white. We can see this as a very racist policy where uh, countries have opened their borders, have uh, welcomed the Ukrainians while they have closed their borders and, in fact, uh, led to the deaths of so many refugees who are trying to come from war-torn areas of Africa. Uh, we see it happening on the shores of Europe right now, horrible situations where refugees are being kept out. And as you say, Juan, uh, the refugees that are coming to the borders of the United States fling very violent situations in Central America, uh, often created by U.S policies over the years uh, and not being allowed into this country. So, yes, it's a very different situation for the white Ukrainians, but I think we should uh, see that as a model uh, and, and say that all refugees should be treated like that. Finally, Andreas Sumach in Berlin, um, who do you see if there were uh, uh, these negotiations to take place? Um, Andreas, I don't know if you can hear me right now. Uh, I think we lost his audio. So we're going to leave it there. But, of course, we're going to continue to cover this. Um, I want to thank Andreas Sumach, uh, the defense correspondent for the German Daily, uh, Die Tageszeitung, who is speaking to us from Berlin, and Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink, just back from western Ukraine, speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Coming up, the United Nations is warning Sudan is on the brink of a full-scale civil war that could destabilize the entire region, with over half a million people already displaced. We'll be back in 30 seconds. تعالوا شوف تعالوا شوف جاتك في الإجازة <تصفيق> 
Dream by Amir Akher. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to Sudan. After three months of fighting between the Sudanese military and the powerful paramilitary force, the United Nations warns Sudan is on the brink of a full-scale civil war that could destabilize the entire region. Egypt is hosting a summit this week with the goal to, quote, develop effective mechanisms with neighboring countries to settle conflict. On Monday, Sudan's army-aligned foreign ministry rejected a proposal at a regional summit in Jeddah to deploy peacekeeping forces to protect civilians. The latest fighting is focused on Umdurman, a city just across the Nile from the capital Khartoum. That's a key supply route for the paramilitary rapid support forces. Sudan's health ministry said Saturday a strike by fighter jets in Amdurman left 22 people dead. The fighting first erupted in April in Khartoum and has now driven nearly 3 million people from their homes, including more than 700,000 who have fled to neighboring countries like Chad, where the World Food Program says 20,000 refugees arrived just last week. This is their representative in Chad, Pierre Onorat. I've rarely seen such an important crisis with so little funding. It's a constant flow, and the ones that are coming now are in much worse situation than those who arrived in the first day. Many of those fleeing Sudan are seriously wounded. Survivors have reported a wave of sexual violence, ethnically targeted killings. This is a Sudanese refugee named Mokhtar speaking to the United Nations Refugee Agency after he fled Chad to Chad. I was shot in the back. I'm waiting for treatment. Sudan is being emptied of its population. Every day, we all fled to Chad. There have been many deaths in Sudan. Those who have arrived in Chad are fewer in number. This comes as a new report from Human Rights Watch documents the burned towns and villages in West Darfur and accuses the paramilitary rapid support forces and allied Arab militias of, quote, the total destruction of a town and executing dozens of people there. For more on all of this, we're joined by two guests. Marine Al-Neil is a Sudanese activist who's usually based in Khartoum. She's now joining us from Muscat, Oman. And in Cairo, Khaled Mustafa Madani uh, is an associate professor of political Political Science and Islamic Studies Chair of the African Studies Program, as well as the Director of the Institute of Islamic Studies at McGill University in Canada. He's from Sudan. Um, let's begin with you, Professor. You're now in Cairo, actually, where these talks are taking place. Can you talk about what's happening on the ground and what's happening in Egypt? Well, on the ground, I think you covered it very well, Amy. First of all, thank you once again for this coverage. On the ground, as you said, the situation um, since early this month has really escalated. In terms of the capital city itself, of course, I think that uh, gentleman uh, that was interviewed in Chad put it exactly right. It's really a strategy of depopulation of the capital city, the complete decimation of the infrastructure, the complete absence now of uh, food and medicine, uh, the targeting and the destruction of food markets, uh, and of course the kind of scramble on the part of both the militia and the Sudan armed forces, uh, as you put it so well, to really try to um, 
monopolized uh, supply routes as the stalemate between these two um, leaders uh, really continues. So the struggle now here is to take over physically uh, the territory of uh, the capital city, but also, of course, to uh, secure supply routes in order to continue this conflict, because both of them are, of course, devastating the country, but essentially not winning the war. In addition to that, since early this month, we've had, of course, uh, unbelievable massacres, looting, uh, all sorts of humanitarian crimes or crimes against humanity, uh, particularly in central Darfur in El Jinena, 70% of that population in, in El Jinena, the capital of West um, uh, Central Darfur, has been uh, essentially depopulated with thousands fleeing. And I want to add, unfortunately, another thing, um, an expansion of the war into the southern states of South Kurdufan and Blue Nile, um, as the insurgent organization led by the insurgent leader Abdel Aziz al-Hilu has uh, basically attacked uh, Sudan armed forces. So here we have an expansion not only in terms of the devastation of the infrastructure in the capital city, um, the you know the fight over supply routes in, in Umdurman and also al Ubaid, a central city between Darfur and, and Khartoum, but also the expansion uh, on the ground uh, with respect to the insurgency as the kind of insurgency in, in the southern part of Sudan now is fighting Burhan, the leader of the Sudan Armed Forces. So this is um, a drastic ex escalation. I do want to add also um, the 700,000, uh, much more actually, that have uh, tried to flee or have fled um, have been uh, the fortunate ones. Now we see countries, Egypt, Chad, and others, Ethiopia, who are restricting the passage of refugees across the borders, essentially holding the Sudanese population even more hostage uh, in the context of, of, of this war. Um, in terms of Egypt, of course, tomorrow, is, as you mentioned, there's going to be yet another uh, kind of roundtable of negotiations, bringing in supposedly the warring parties. This is um, a problem in terms of uh, how it is designed. Uh, and a problem that reflects uh, this war's relationship to external actors. A number of external actors, whether it's in Kenya, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the Emirates, um, have, of course, uh, you know, different interests with respect to this war, and they have different relationships in terms of their support or lack thereof of, uh, uh, with respect to the Sudan Armed Forces or the militias, the Rapid Support Forces. So we, here we have a kind of a competition or competitive initiatives that are undermining what is really key uh, with respect to eventually resolving this war, and that is a truly multilateral, and we've spoken about this uh, before, a multilateral coherent uh, initiative that brings both parties together, includes civil society actors that actually would help set the agenda and implement a, a ceasefire and then go on to um, resolving this conflict towards a resolution, a political resolution. So here we have these competitive initiatives. The one in Jeddah that uh, has failed, uh, the one in Addis Ababa that has also failed because of its um, exclusiveness and the bias that uh, that the Kenyan um, uh, president uh, Ruto reportedly has vis-a-vis -vis the rapid support forces. And now tomorrow, Egypt's uh, conference that uh, does not include uh, the civilian stakeholders, which is really essential, and also, importantly, does not include the external actors that are so important, including, for example, the United Arab Emirates. So uh, here we have these competitive 
initiatives that are undermining any kind of positive outcome with respect to resolving this conflict. So we have an internal conflict that is devastating the country, but um, importantly and problematically, uh, we have these competing initiatives that are undermining uh, a multilateral solution to a conflict that does not, of course, only affect Sudan, but as you put it so well, Amy, really is destabilizing the entire region, including the Middle East region, if you don't mind me saying. Well, well Professor, Professor, I wanted to ask you, you talk, you mentioned external forces in, uh, involved. Uh, so, so often uh, the conflict in Sudan is portrayed basically as a, a civil war in a failed state without taking into account uh, these historical uh, outside actors. I wanted to ask you about the role of the United States, the IMF, which has probably, I don't know, done maybe 11 restructurings uh, over recent decades in Sudan, and also the fact that in the 60s and the 1970s, Sudan uh, probably had the largest uh, communist party in the Arab world. It was actually a very important in, uh, force within Sudanese society, which clearly uh, upset the United States uh, and the Western powers. So if you could talk about the U.S. role, uh, the, uh, uh, the IMF role, uh, and, uh, and also uh, this history that most people are not aware of. Yes, absolutely. The the history of the Communist Party in Sudan and it, the transition from the Communist Party to an Islamist uh, government that took over power in 1989 reflects not only Sudanese history, but the history of the region in general. And that is, uh, by the early 1970s, the very sheer strength of the Communist Party uh, led to the president or the dictator at the time, Jafar Nimeri, uh, to uh, purge uh, the Communist Party from his ranks, from the military, and of course also from his uh, one-party system at the time. This coincided with his uh, kind of shifting his alliance, of course, uh, under the pressure of the United States and Saudi Arabia uh, from uh, the kind of uh, uh, Soviet bloc at the time during the Cold War uh, towards uh, the U.S. camp. Uh, that is, of course, a policy or transition or transformation that um, is similar to many countries in Africa and the Middle East. Um, in that context, uh, the uh, the support of on the part of the former dictator to the Islamist movement that took took over power in the military coup in, 19, in 1989, really um, coincided with two important imperatives that were at that time very important for the United States. One of them, of course, was to turn the Sudan into an ally of the U.S. and the Saudi Arabia, which is really important. And one of them was to implement uh, neoliberal policies. It really was after uh, 1989 when the Islamists took over power. Despite all the criticism of Islamism in recent years, during during that period in the 1990s, there was a great deal of enthusiasm because the Islamist movement under Hassan Turabi and Omar Bashir, who was recently ousted, actually implemented draconian forms of neoliberalism under the, of course, auspices of uh, essentially uh, early on under the IMF and World Bank. That kind of policy was more corrupt than even neoliberal, um, and that is well known to Sudanese. In other words, even privatization policies really amassed the wealth and helped to build the deep state. Uh, so the turn towards uh, being an ally with the United States and, of course, Saudi Arabia, which is a superpower or regional power in the region, coincided with the implementation of neo 
neoliberal reforms under uh, the government of the Islamist uh, uh, Umar Bashir at the time. That becomes really important. Um, the, through the 1990s, I don't want to rehearse all of Sudan's history, but just to bring us up to date, the United States um, was, of course, imposing sanctions because of uh, uh, because of Sudan's support of Osama bin Laden uh, and Al Qaeda and Islamic militants in the country. But they they maintained intelligence cooperation uh, with the regime, particularly after 9/11. So there was on uh, on rhetorically, formally, an opposition to uh, the Sudanese government as supporting terrorism. But at the same time, following 9/11 and the bombings in Kenya and uh, Tanzania in the late 1990s, actually intelligence sharing uh, continued. So there was always this relationship of cooperation on the intelligence kind of files. And that is something I think many people, particularly in the United States, are not aware of. Um, following the revolution of 2018, the United States did, uh, you know, belatedly take a position to support a transition to democracy. But here, although that seems very positive, um, the lack of inclusion uh, during the negotiations of legitimate civil society forces, including the resistance committees, uh, to make a long story short, the exclusion of the young people who actually brought down the dictatorship of Umar Bashir in 2019 uh, from uh, the negotiations, that exclusion uh, almost determined or was over-determined over uh, the failure of uh, the negotiations and also highlighted or actually promoted the strength of Burhan, the head of the military, and uh, Himeti, Mohammed uh, Hamdan Dagalo, uh, into the main players following the revolution, sidelining the civil society groups and the resistance committee and the youth that actually empowered and were responsible for the revolution. Um, if you will follow the logic, if you don't mind me saying, you will see that these negotiations occurring currently are following the same fatal mistakes. A, by not including the key civil society actors and those in the ground who are uh, really uh, the only ones who can implement any ceasefire and uh, build peace in the different communities and eventually transition the country to a democrat uh, to a civilian democracy um, and of course be not including all of the major stakeholders regionally who have vested interest in Sudan without which they will play as uh, all act as spoilers that is uh, supporting one militia or supporting the militia or supporting the army and so here we see the same mistakes that the US has played not only in terms of promoting a neoliberalism that ended up undermining the economy of Sudan but also building, helping to build a, a deep state uh, that is now being sanctioned, ironically, by the, the U.S. Treasury Department. Certain corporations are being uh, um, actually uh, sanctioned uh, to uh, stop uh, this war being fueled uh, on, on both sides. Uh, ironically, these uh, corporations really flourished under the policies of quote-unquote neoliberalism, if that makes any sense. But finally, I want to conclude with what is going on now, and that is uh, the devastation that is uh, that is ongoing has to have uh, an understanding that this is first and foremost, of course, a local conflict with local roots, but it is directly related historically to external interventions, economic, as you put it, but also geostrategic. Uh, therefore, there can be no resolution to this conflict if, if all of the actors, regional, who are vested, who have vested interest in Sudan, and all of those stakeholders who are primarily responsible for the revolution and have the greatest legitimacy among the Sudanese population, whether it's in Khartoum or Darfur, are brought in not only uh, as a kind of uh, a sideshow, 
but to help set the agenda and, from my perspective, actually form a united caretaker civilian government in preparation for the end of the war and a transition to a civilian democracy. Well, McGill, Professor uh, Khalid Mustafa Medani, such an important history to understand. We want to turn right now to Maureen Al-Neil, a Sudanese activist who we usually speak to in Khartoum, amazingly. Uh, each time we called, we couldn't believe you were still there. But right now you're in Oman. Can you talk about your decision to leave, um, what that meant, and what the conditions are on the ground still there? It has been 110 long days for the people in Sudan. Uh, more and more people have fled the cities with ongoing conflict, including the capital Khartoum and in the Darfur region, cities such as Al-Fashir and Al-Jinana, as well as many other cities and towns that have faced uh, airstrikes by the Sudanese armed forces and violations by the rapid support uh, forces. Um, uh, this includes my my decision um, to leave for the lack of uh, uh, safety and livelihood options in Sudan currently. Uh, many families are dependent on employed family members that have and they've not had an income for three months now. And uh, uh, many now depend on help of uh, relatives abroad, but they are also facing difficulties in transferring funds to Sudan. It is becoming more and more likely that we will see a famine in Sudan due to this war. There is some medical and food aid coming from international organizations, but it is far from sufficient. And the methods of delivery and distribution are flawed. In some cities, people found uh, food aid packages being sold. Um, the rainy season is starting, which might lead to active conflict lessening, but also a rise in shelter issues with flooding and difficulties in transportation and movement of people and goods and medical issues like uh, malaria. And the medical situation is still in a dire state. Over 60 hospitals in conflict zones have been forced to shut down and the remaining 29 are struggling with power cuts and staff and resource shortages. Uh, some cities like Jenina have no functioning hospitals and uh, medical professionals in the few hospitals that are functioning in other cities are facing a shortage in basic medical supplies, uh, even medical gauze. And operations are routinely being performed without anesthesia. Uh, Medication storages in Darfur have all been destroyed, and the import routes that the region is dependent on have been nearly completely cut off, uh, not to mention the lack of medications for chronic diseases. Um, all of the dialysis patients in Jenina have lost their lives, and many more in other cities. Bear in mind that Khartoum uh, has been the main destination in Sudan for medical services, and that is now inaccessible. Um, popular efforts are actually what have been uh, keeping the few remaining medical services alive, uh, with many volunteer professionals and popular fundraising and coordinating to deliver medical supplies. Uh, the popular effort that is being conducted by the same people and entities that are being sidelined in the talks, the regional talks, um, uh, whether the failed did the talks with their sham ceasefires and uh, the, the talks in Chad, which hosted armed group uh, leaders, and in Egypt, which will be hosting heads of states of neighboring countries. Uh, the well-being of the Sudanese people is not being uh, represented in these talks. Um, the talks in Ethiopia supposedly had the forces of freedom and, uh, uh, and change uh, to represent the civilians in Sudan, but the forces of freedom and change uh, were already a polarizing entity in 2019 after entering the negotiations with the army, and now they have all but completely lost their remaining popular base and basically became just an elite group that are only representative of the, uh, the uh, opinions of the individuals in them. Um, uh, recent statements from um, the EGAT talks and um, uh, the narratives that are being portrayed by the media, such as some American media outlets that are emphasizing uh, the RSF being a, a Wagner-backed militia, um, uh, it's starting to spark fear that uh, this war might turn into a proxy war like many others in the region. Um, all these talks that are being organized by foreign entities are still insisting on centering uh, the war makers, um, who will obviously never be interested in the well-being uh, of the people. Uh, the SAF 
IDF are refusing they attend to the uh, the talks uh, while continuing arbitrary uh, airstrikes that are mostly leading to civilian suffering. And the RSF, uh, as their delegations are, these talks are continuing their violations in the cities that are under their control with uh, no prospects of retreat. Um, and although uh, in um, the recent statements, so for example, from the Ethiopia talks, there is an emphasis on ceasefire, but the statements are generally weak. And are, unfortunately, we are still hearing a focus on a transitional process. Um, in a recent article by Dr. Shahid uh, Srinivasan, a, a politics scholar um, and, and has expertise on Sudan, he said that the international focus on a transitional process is what empowered the generals. And it, it's what weakened the democracy activists, which eventually led to this war. It is unfortunate that in this day and age, we still choose to ignore the lessons learned from both the lived experiences of the people on the ground and uh, the evidence-based analysis, and we rather depend on um, opinions of elites. That's what got us to this war in the first place, and it will definitely not be what gets us out of it. Well, Maureen O'Neill, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Sudanese activists, usually in Khartoum, now in Oman, and Khalid Mustafa Medani, Associate Professor of Political Science and Islamic Studies, chair of the African Studies Program, as well as director of the Institute of Islamic Studies at McGill University. He is from Sudan, as she is, of course. We go next to Vermont, where catastrophic flooding submerged the state's capital. Back in 20 seconds. Time has made a change since my childhood days. Time has made a change by Sam Amadon. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we go to Vermont, where waters are starting to recede after catastrophic flooding inundated roads, homes and businesses. The flooding submerged much of Montpelier, the state's capital. Parts of Vermont received two months of rain over a span of just days, stranding many people in their homes. Vermont officials say they've had to rescue 100 people who were trapped by the worst flooding in a century. We go now to Waterbury, Vermont, which was also hit hard, where we're joined by David Goodman, my brother, an author, award-winning journalist, host of the public affairs podcast and radio show The Vermont Conversation. His new piece for The Vermont Digger is headlined, A Flood-Battered But Wiser Waterbury Rises from the Ruins Again. His books include When the River Rose, Stories of a Vermont Town's Flood Recovery and Rebirth, also co-author of the new book, The Community School's Revolution, Building Partnerships, Transforming Lives, Advancing Democracy. David, Thanks so much for being with us. Can you explain what you've been out covering over this last day and, and how grave this is, uh, what it means for Vermont? Well, uh, hi, Amy, and thanks for having me and covering this. Um, the state has really been hammered. Uh, this is a—the governor has described it as historic and catastrophic floods. The uh, This is the second so-called 100-year flood that has taken place in 12 years. Uh, my town, Waterbury, which is just about 15 minutes from the state capital, uh, was submerged in 2011 after Hurricane Irene. And again, yesterday, although yesterday in Waterbury was not as devastating as it was, um, 
the state capital, Montpelier, was inundated yesterday. So the streets uh, were completely flooded. Also, the neighboring city of Barrie and southern Vermont was also hit. Uh, so there were up to nine inches of rain fell in parts of Vermont. Yes, uh, over the last few days. And, and David, what uh, have any of the flood resilience measures that were taken in, in two thousand after two thousand eleven to fortify buildings? Did any of them hold up this time around? Well, uh, it's an interesting question, Juan. And in my town in Waterbury is home to the uh, state office complex, which was nearly destroyed after Hurricane Irene, which was a $750 million uh, rebuilding effort around the state. And it included rebuilding the state office complex with flood resiliency in mind. That meant uh, removing earth, uh, removing buildings. So instead of trying to hold back a river in this you know, climate change world, which is impossible, to allow rivers to spread out uh, and a number of other measures that downtown uh, increased the size of its drains. This was actually a long running fight with FEMA uh, after the flood of green because FEMA normally only replaces with what it replaces exactly what was destroyed. And in a climate changed world, that doesn't work. Um, it doesn't work to put in the same small pipes. So at least in my town, a lot of those measures seem to work. It uh, the state complex was spared and our downtown was flooded. Forty homes were flooded, six businesses, but many of them were not as inundated as they were uh, a dozen years ago. That is not the case in Montpelier and Barrie, which really had historic destruction. David, can you talk about what's happened with unhoused people? You have the um, catastrophe for them of um, at the end of the pandemic, uh, many being put out of hotels that they were put I'm not into. You. David, can you hear me? Can you talk about the situation of the unhoused? Um, there were um, there are thousands of unhoused in Vermont, many put in hotels, um, uh, then put out of hotels, who then make their way to the rivers to set up encampments. Um, as we go, David, can you talk about the situation of the unhoused? The situation there, uh, there was for the last three years, uh, uh, some 2,000 unhoused people sheltered in motels around the state. And about 800 people, the program ended, the funding ended, and about a month ago, about 800 people uh, were forced to leave this emergency housing. Many of them went, were provided with tents, which was all that was available, and they uh, then, you know, it was unclear where many of them went. So there has been a frantic effort over the last few days to locate some of these unhoused people, to find these encampments. Um, in some cases, uh, the camping areas were found, but the people had moved on. There have not been any deaths reported in Vermont. So the belief is that people have relocated themselves, but these unhoused people remain uh, extremely vulnerable and there's tremendous concern about their fate.
We're going to have to leave it there. David Goodman, host of the Public Affairs podcast and radio show The Vermont Conversation, joining us from Waterbury, Vermont. We'll link to your new piece in Vermont Digger, headlined a flood-battered but wiser Waterbury rises from the ruins again. David is the author of, among other books, When the River Rose, Stories of a Vermont Town's Flood Recovery and Rebirth, as well as The Community Schools Revolution, just out last month. That does it for our show. Democracy Now! is produced with Mike Burke, Renee Felstina, Gazdar Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warrenoff, Trina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamaru Astudio, John Hamilton, Rabbi Karen, Hani Masood, and Sanji Lopez. Our executive directors, Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.